came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 9th of February 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy. And this week our special guest is Dr Amanda Bauer who studies galactic evolution and explains a variety of digital sky surveys. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup, and whenever we can, we'll be crossing to Tver in Russia again to speak with Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Amanda. Hello, hello. It gives me great pleasure to speak today with Dr. Amanda Bauer, who has just been appointed as the new Head of Education and Public Outreach at the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Amanda, tell us about growing up in Cincinnati. How dark were the skies there where you lived? And tell us how you became interested in science and space. Well, Cincinnati, Ohio, USA, right in the Midwest, it didn't necessarily have very dark skies. I grew up in a suburb of the city, so I didn't see the Milky Way galaxy until I was, I think, 19 or 20. But I did like to look at the stars. In fact, I would go to a friend's house and play after school, and I would walk home to dinner, and I would be late sometimes because I would be looking up at the stars and kind of making up my own constellations. So I did get in trouble for that a few times. Fantastic. I think one of the keys for me when I really knew I was interested in astronomy, I mean, I I did have this fascination with the constellations and and just looking at the stars, not necessarily memorizing constellations. But when I was a teenager, there were two comets that were very bright in the skies in the Northern Hemisphere. One was Hayutake, and the other one was Hale-Bopp. And they were one year apart from each other, and they just sat in the sky very brightly and just glowed there for about a month each. And I remember going outside in the evening and looking at these comets and bringing my family out because I was so excited to show just this thing is moving so quickly through our solar system, but it's just hanging out in the sky and we can watch it. I was absolutely fascinated. My family was not terribly interested, but I think that really got me into the idea that, yes, I want to know more about this. And then you went on to university after your school days. Tell us about your early university studies. 
Well, I didn't have a choice at the university I went to because my dad worked at the hospital, so I got free tuition. I looked if they had an astronomy program and they did not. So the next best thing was I wanted to travel. So I studied French, thinking that I could travel to other countries and maybe teach English. Now, that didn't actually work out so well. They didn't have an exchange program. But the good thing that came out of it is I only had to take one year of science, and there was an Astronomy 101 course that I ended up taking. So that kind of sparked a little bit more that, yeah, I, I was interested in astronomy. I really liked it, even though I'll be honest, I did not do very well my first semester. Like the kind of, you know, college starting, getting used to life on my own. I, I didn't really get great grades that first year. <laughs> <laughs> so early in your college career, in your undergraduate studies, you worked on Sloan. Now, what is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey? The Sloan Digital Sky Survey is operated by a telescope that's in um, New Mexico, and they look at a huge chunk of the sky, about a third of the night sky, and they take optical images and spectroscopy of about three million astronomical objects. So they're looking at a heck of a lot of the objects out in the sky. It was one of the biggest, the first huge surveys that looked at so many different objects in the sky. Yep. Okay, and then you went on and did your master's and focused on researching how galaxies evolve and then completed your PhD in 2008. Now, during your PhD, you travelled a lot. Where did you go to and what did you learn on those travels? Yeah, who knew that studying astronomy actually would allow me to travel as much as I wanted to in my initial college career. So I had the opportunity to go to Germany a few times. I ended up spending about four months in Munich working with one of the Max Planck Institutes studying galaxy evolution. And then right after that, I went to Chile for about eight months to work with the Gemini Observatory. I was there to help commission a new instrument. When you build a new technology, you have to make sure that it's working right. So you have to test out all of its operations and, and see how robust it is. And my job as a PhD student was to identify which astronomical objects to look at during that commissioning phase that would be of scientific use. So it was quite a fun experience, eight months down there. And, and I lived in a small town called La Serena, but then I would go up into the Andes where the telescope lived in the mountains. So it was, it was quite an experience for me. I really loved it. And then I went back to Austin, Texas afterwards to finish my PhD. Awesome. And then you took a postdoc at the University of Nottingham in England. What did you do there? I was a research fellow at the University of Nottingham. I studied some Hubble data, trying to look at galaxies and how they formed stars, and in particular, why they stopped forming stars. I also spent some time analyzing some data that I was able to collect with the Gemini telescope during that trip down south of a galaxy cluster. This is a dense city of galaxies that all live stuck together by gravity. So they live together, orbit around each other. Um, and I tried to look at how those galaxies varied based on their position, where they lived in that galaxy cluster, if they were in the, the very dense center of it, or if they lived kind of in the, the suburban outskirts, or even in the cosmic outback. And I found an interesting result that the galaxies in the center were not forming, the center of this cluster, the dense city, were not forming stars, new stars, as rapidly as those galaxies that lived out in the suburbs. 
Okay. So then you moved out to Australia. Well, before I came to Australia, one of the the really interesting things that I got to do in Nottingham was it was during the International Year of Astronomy in 2009. So I spent a lot of time that year organizing many outreach events. Um, We had an event at Nottingham Castle and we started a public lecture series. So that was one of my forays officially into science communication was being able to lead all of these International Year of Astronomy events at Nottingham. What a great combination, old castles and new astronomy. Oh, and it was even on the date of our event was on Halloween. So I had a lot of people dressing up in costumes. It was very fun. (laughs) Fantastic. So your outreach career started quite early. It did. It actually even started earlier than that. When I traveled to Germany and then to Chile, that's when I started to keep a blog and really started with social media, partially because I wanted to keep my family updated and share photos and travel stories. But I wanted to try to practice writing science for a more general audience. I I felt the scientific writing was a bit too dry and I was hoping to get a bit more exciting, uh, creative with the storytelling of the science. And this would be a great time to remind anyone in our audience who is on Twitter, you can follow Astro Pixie. She's fantastic. Oh, thank you very much. So then you moved to Australia, for which we are eternally grateful because you've been very active here and you've worked at the Australian Astronomical Observatory in Sydney. Tell us about your time here at the AAO. Yeah, I moved down here to take up a position that was called a super science fellowship. And I mean, how can you improve from being a super scientist officially? I think that was great. (laughs) But it turned out that the fellowship itself was looking for someone with an expertise in how stars form in galaxies, which was exactly what what my expertise was in. So I I settled right in at the Australian Astronomical Observatory. I spent a lot of time going to the the big Anglo-Australian telescope, the 4-meter optical telescope at Siding Spring Observatory, to do observations for two of the survey projects that I worked on, um, namely GAMMA, which is Galaxy and Mass Assembly. That's what GAMMA stands for. Uh, And then another survey is called SAMI, and that one uses a unique technology to look at the entire face of the galaxy and get a huge amount of data about what's happening with individual, well, with stars across the face of the galaxy instead of just one snapshot of the galaxy at one time. Awesome. So now you've got 60 or 70 papers published in peer-reviewed journals and I've looked up, you've got hundreds of thousands of citations, which we obviously can't go into at this stage, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot. Uh, There was one paper that did leap out at me, and that was a paper about the SAMI survey, because we earlier interviewed Dr. Caroline Foster in an earlier episode about SAMI. So all of these surveys, Dr. Bauer, Wiggle Z, SDSS, SAMI, Wallaby, and there's a multitude of others, how are we going to derive new knowledge from the petabytes of data that are being generated on a virtually daily basis? Yeah, it's it's almost an overwhelming amount thinking about the amount of data that's going to come out of these projects. But they're being designed very specifically to overlap in ways that they can look at similar objects in order to get a full picture of what's happening with those objects. Now, there are hundreds and thousands of these objects, but if I look at a galaxy with optical light, I can understand what's happening with its stars right now if it's forming any new stars. But if I look at the light with, say, hydrogen gas, the Wallaby survey will be looking at that, then I can understand what kind of gas 
that galaxy has. So what kind of fuel will form new stars? So I can understand maybe a little bit of the history of the galaxy, if it still has gas, and if the galaxy will have the potential to form new stars in the future. So it's lots of data, but by being very clever in overlapping where these surveys are going to look at, we can really get a full picture of how galaxies have evolved to where they are today and what might happen to them in the future. That's awesome. A lot of people are aware that whenever we're looking at stars, we're looking into the past, but it's great to see that you can also look into the future. Well, we do know that our galaxy is going to crash into Andromeda in a few billion years, so that's definitely one pending thing, but lots of other galaxies will interact with each other as well, and that gives us an idea of whether or not they'll continue to form stars or not. Fantastic. Now, back to you. Outreach has been a constant theme in your career, and you've recently taken up a position with the 8-metre light bucket, twice as big as the one you're currently using, called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is high in the mountains in Chile in South America. Now, as their new head of education and public outreach, how will this new position work for you, Amanda? Where will you be based? And more importantly, why is outreach so important? Oh, lots of questions. So I will be based in Tucson, Arizona. So I'll be moving back to the U.S. very shortly. And this is where our offices are, even though the telescope is in Chile. I think the thing that excites me the most about this position is the the LSST program will provide a huge amount of data, but my job is to take that data and put it in the hands of students, put it in the hands of the public, allow people to actually play with it and make their own discoveries. The LSST will look at a huge chunk of the sky over and over every three nights for 10 years, and that will give us a time-lapse video of the universe and allow us to see how things change in a way we can't even predict. And there's no way just the scientists on the project or even all the astronomers in the world can tap into all of the potential knowledge to be gained from that survey. And so I get to use my team to develop projects that allow everyone to use that data. And I think that's exciting because it it will allow you to ask your own questions where you can investigate farther and farther and give you an appreciation for the process of how science is done, of how you actually discover things and create new knowledge. And hopefully that follows through in the minds of, of students as they grow into adulthood to understand the effort that goes into the scientific process, how we come up with results, how we understand or deduce that the facts are as we observe them, as we test them out. And and what happens with those science facts is a, a completely different thing. Then it becomes the realm of politics. But just the pure appreciation of science as a pursuit of knowledge and gaining that knowledge, I think, is something I'm very excited to try to allow the public to take part in, to participate in. Fantastic. So do you anticipate creating some sort of citizen science project? In previous episodes, we've talked about Galaxy Zoo and Radio Galaxy Zoo. Are you thinking about developing a project where people can design their own citizen science projects? Oh, that is a fabulous question. That is actually exactly what we are looking into. So we're hoping to be able to allow people to use the data that comes from the LSST to ask their own questions through uh, the Zooniverse interface. That's something we'll be developing quite, a, working on quite a bit over the next five years. So stay tuned for that. And hopefully it works out as smoothly as I have in mind. But that's exactly what we're hoping to allow people to do. 
Sensational, Dr. Bauer. And what we do here is we do invite our guests back in 12 and 24 months' time to get a, a bit of an update on your projects. Now, the microphone is all yours, Amanda, and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science and education and astronomy. Oh, so many. How do I choose? I think a very relevant one at the moment is how science gets disseminated into the public. I mean, it's one thing to do the science and to come up with the results and to convince my peers that what I've done is is valid and then publish the work and it's out there. But once it's out in the realm and it becomes the property of the public, how media interprets it and how politicians use it is really critical. I think it's we're at a very sensitive point when um, political leaders can choose and, and pick or they seem to be picking and choosing facts uh, as opposed to looking at all of the facts that we put out there. And then based on what they decide they think is is valid for their point um, really skews what is actually there. So I think as a community, as citizens, we really need to make sure we are being careful of, of how science is politicized and therefore how it gets funded. Science isn't very interested in alternative facts. Well, alternative facts don't exist. Let's be very clear. These are lies. These are fabricated things. These are totally made up. There is no alternative fact. That is not a thing. <laughs> that is exactly the politicization of, of science, which is very disconcerting. It's very concerning for me, especially now that I'm moving back to the U.S. But Australia certainly isn't immune to these sorts of things. Now, before we wrap up, Dr. Bauer, you've got a story about serendipity and how we can grasp opportunities when they're presented to us. <laughs> okay, well, this I'll, I'll tell a story that goes back to my undergraduate studies, how I actually got into the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, how the opportunity to work with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey came about. We had a visiting particle physicist come to our department, and they offered an hour-long session where undergraduates could go and speak with her. And I was the only student who showed up. So I spoke with her for, oh, I don't know, 45 minutes, and we had just learned about detecting gravitational waves. Remember, this was 20 years ago, so it was a very new thing, nowhere near the LIGO results. And so I was just throwing out ideas and, and I think very enthusiastic about something I knew nothing about, and we, were, we just had a lovely chat, and someone finally showed up, so I said goodbye. And about a week later, I got an email from her, and she said she enjoyed our conversation, and she was wondering if I would be interested in working at Fermilab in Chicago for the summer where she worked. This was a particle laboratory. And I was blown away. I was so incredibly thrilled to get the opportunity, but I thought about it and I responded and I said, I actually am very interested in doing astronomy, not particle physics. So thank you so much for the offer, but that's not really what I want to do. And she responded immediately and said, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you to work with me. I've actually contacted the head of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, whose offices are based in Fermilab, to see if they would hire you and they're willing. So I'm just going to put you in contact with their head and then you can go and do astronomy for the summer if you're interested. Uh. I was just blown away. So my point is, if an opportunity comes along, take it. I just went and had a chat with her and I kind of asked questions. I was not embarrassed to not know things. And I think just through that opportunity, through my enthusiasm, this came about. So don't be afraid to just get out there and, and do something and say things that are on your mind. You never know what's going to come out of it. That's beautiful. Luck doesn't happen. It's created. Yeah, most of the time. An important question for you now. What plans do you have for Ida Luna's first birthday celebration? 
Oh, this is my daughter, Ida Luna. We are going to have a big picnic, spend one of our last weekends in Sydney in a park under the trees with friends, possibly go for a swim. She likes going through all the little sprinklers and fountains that are in the local parks. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Dr. Amanda Bauer. It's been sensational speaking with you. My pleasure. It's been great. That was astrophysicist Dr. Amanda Bauer, and you can keep up to date with her research by following AstroPixie on Twitter. And now we're crossing to Adelaide in South Australia to speak with Dr. Ian Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's the echo? Echo, echo, echo. <laughs> Very funny, Ian. Great to talk with you again. Here we yeah. are in 2017. Who'd have thought? Yeah, yeah, well, it's a nice prime number anyway. Okay, let's get stuck right into it now. Okay. What's up in the night sky this week, Ian? Well, Brendan, what's up in the night sky this week is, if you're up in the evening, is once again we're still getting to see the beautiful pairing of Venus and Mars. Now, if you've been watching the uh, motions of Venus over the Christmas holidays, you'll have been noticing Venus edging closer and closer to Mars. So it doesn't get too much closer than this, unfortunately. Uh, soon Venus starts heading back towards the uh, horizon a bit faster. But if you're uh, out in the evening, from the evening twilight, you can see Venus and Mars forming a beautiful pair in the afternoon twilight for much longer as it uh, pair don't set until quite late at night. Although uh, uh, as the week goes by, you'll see them setting a bit earlier and earlier. If you look at Venus through a small telescope, you'll see that Venus is now a distinct crescent shape. Uh, it's not the ultra-thin crescent you'll see later on uh, towards the end of the month and beginning of March, but it's a, it's a, a distinct well-past half-moon phase as we watch. And also as we watch, Venus will become bigger and bigger. At, at the moment, in binoculars, it still looks like a bright dot, but even in uh, small telescopes, you'll be able to see a, uh, a definite waning uh, moon shape from Venus. Yep. The other thing that's happening is that Jupiter is now rising before midnight, before you have to get up at ungodly hours of the morning in order to see Jupiter. Jupiter is also closer than five degrees to the bright star speaker, also brightest star in the constellation of Virgo the Virgin. So for the rest of this month, uh, both uh, Speaker and uh, Jupiter will be very close together and making a lovely pairing, rising uh, just before midnight and looking very nice indeed. On the 15th of this month, you'll be able to see Jupiter, Speaker and, and the Moon together. In fact, the Moon is almost, Jupiter will be almost directly in between, a line between uh, Speaker and the Moon. Yep. Of course, if you want to want to look at Jupiter in a telescope, you still have to wait until the early morning for Jupiter to get high enough above the horizon to see to to, uh, to uh, see it with a telescope with any degree of uh, lack of turbulence. And if you watch uh, in either binocular telescope, you'll be able to see the dance of Jupiter's moons, which will look very nice. And if you're uh, looking on uh, the morning of Thursday, you'll be able to see nice transfer first Europa uh, tra shadow transit across the face of by Jupiter, followed by Europa itself, then Ganymede, and uh, shadow begins to trans across the surface of Jupiter, followed by Ganymede itself. So that will be all quite, quite nice indeed. 
Sounds good. In the early morning, you'll be able to see Saturn and Mercury. If you're looking to the east, you'll be able to see the distinctive question mark shape of uh, Scorpio, the scorpion, and the brightest object below that, Saturn, and the, uh, then the brightest object below that again is Mercury. And they'll look uh, quite nice uh, early in the morning. Mercury is heading rapidly towards the horizon, and this week will be the last week you'll be able to see Mercury clearly in the morning before it gets too close to the sun. So the message is... Ian, stay up late and get up early. Stay up late, not too late, because otherwise you'll miss Venus and uh, Mars. Uh, and uh, and uh, get up early, yes, indeed. There's uh, some other things you should be getting up early for. This week sees the closest approach of the comet 45P oh, uh, yes. to, yep. to yep. Earth, and you'll see it. And uh, it, it's only visible in the uh, early morning, but uh, at the moment, a little bit low above the horizon by uh, nautical twilight, which means it'll be uh, dark enough up, and it, it's really relatively bright. It's around about magnitude 6, but a little bit brighter than magnitude 7, so it should be able to be picked up in fairly strong binoculars or a good telescope. It is rather diffuse and fuzzy, so even though it's theoretically uh, bright enough to see easily, practice it will be a little bit hard to see because of its fuzziness. But it's getting higher and higher, and by the 11th, it will be its, its closest to Earth, and then zipping through the through the morning constellations. In fact, it's going, through, going past so fast, it's a little bit difficult to, to uh, really give a good, uh, give good directions. If you look in the morning sky, you'll be able to see uh, Saturn reasonably bright. You'll be able to see the bright star Curus as the next reasonably bright star off towards the north. And the comet will be roughly between those two, but very low down on the horizon. So if you have a search with binoculars around there, you should be able to pick it up as a very faint fuzzy dot early in the morning. The uh, Probably the easiest time it will be uh, to see is shortly after its closest approach. Its closest approach, it's it's nowhere very interesting, which is the problem. <laughs> so at, at its closest approach on the 11th, it's just below one, one of the bright stars in Hercules. So, but it, it's about two two binoculars down, binoculars down from the, the star uh, Beta Hercules, uh, you'll be able to see the the comet. And then then it sort of go, goes into a zone without too many stars. Uh, which uh, to make it easy to find. But on the 13th, it's almost dead in the middle of Corona Borealis, so you should be able to uh, see it reasonably easily then. It's best to have a, a good map before you start looking for it, because again, it's going to be, even though theoretically it's bright enough to see it in binoculars and, and small telescopes, because it's um, extended and fuzzy, it makes it very difficult to, uh, to pick up. And what about our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere? They'll be having exactly the same issues and they'll be able to see it in, uh, in the early morning, but they'll be having the, uh, the same issues where it's quite close to the horizon and uh, not anywhere where it's really exciting. Although with, uh, in the southern hemisphere, the comet is zooming uh, close to the, from the east to the north. In the uh, northern hemisphere, it's heading almost uh, directly up. So after about the uh, 13th, you should be able to see it quite nicely in dark skies. So that's um, that's that's uh, something that they should be uh, quite good. So from about well, say say from about the thirteenth, and the thirteenth when it's in Corona Borealis onwards, uh, it'll uh, cross close to North Pole. So 
and, and the under uh, and the dark skies, it should be really reasonably easy to find. Again, the same caveats about being an extended object and fuzzy, but it'll be in a much darker part of the sky than in the southern hemisphere, so you should be able to pick it up a little bit easier. Very good. Okay. For the Southern Hemisphere listeners or for our Australian listeners, the night of the 11th, while the morning of the 11th is when the uh, Comet 45P is closest to us, I've just said, the night of the 11th sees the moon going in front of the bright star Regulus. Now, Regulus is uh, quite bright and it's the brightest star in uh, Leo, the lion, and uh, this will be very easy to watch. The moon's uh, pretty close to being full. But uh, Regulus is bright enough, you'll be able to easily see it against the, the glare of the uh, virtually full moon. Again, uh, for those of you who want to watch these things in uh, binoculars or telescopes, it's fairly obvious where the moon is, and you'll be able to see, uh, and Regulus is the obviously brightest star right next to the moon. Uh, unfortunately, this occurs around about midnight from most of Australia, or just after midnight on the east coast. So you have to stay up fairly late, but as, as one of the uh, uh, brightest occultations this year, um, it, it's uh, well worth having a look. If you want to wait for a couple of months, uh, Regulus is going to be uh, occulted by uh, the moon again, a little bit more favourably for those people who don't like to stay up late. But this one, this one's quite nice and should be uh, should be quite interesting. Very good. Wraps it up for what's in what's in the sky um, this week. There's uh, um, plenty of interesting things to see. Providing uh, like uh, you, like me at the moment, don't happen to have torrential rain pouring down and blocking out the entire sky. <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing is the asteroid Vesta. The asteroid Vesta is, is now fading. It was at uh, opposition in the middle of January, but it's still bright enough to see in binoculars. It's moving through Gemini, actually coming past relatively bright stars. So you should be able to see it reasonably easy. Very good. And this is a good opportunity when we can remind listeners to follow Ian F. Musgrave on Twitter. And you can also just Google Astroblogger and go to Ian's excellent blog where he gives weekly updates of what's up in the sky this week. Indeed. One of the great things about astronomy is it's very predictable, but also there's things that come out of left field and always surprise us. So that's something to look forward to. We'll just have to keep our, keep our eyes on the skies. Very good, Ian. We'll look forward to you highlighting those things as they come around in episodes of Astrophys. So let's do our traditional sign-off now. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you very much for having me on, Brendan, and keep looking up, and hopefully your skies will be clear. Thanks, Ian. So while it's 40 degrees centigrade here in northeast Victoria, it's minus 21 in Tver in Russia, and I haven't been able to get in touch with Dr. Nadezhda Sherbakov, so we'll hopefully bring her to the microphone in the next episode. Meanwhile, here's the Astrophys News. Our first report is from... Cahill O'Connell, writing for Cosmos magazine. Thank you, Cahill, and thank you, Belinda Smith. An extragalactic void is shoving our galaxy from behind. So what causes some galaxies to speed along faster than others? The answer, it turns out, is nothing. Astronomers have finally discovered why the Milky Way is barreling through space faster than the universe's rate of expansion. It's being pushed from behind by an enormous void dubbed the Dipole Repeller. The work published today in Nature Astronomy 
fills a gaping hole in our understanding of the local universe. The Milky Way galaxy is a whirling disk, 100,000 light-years across, sparkling with 100 billion stars. But zoom out, and our galaxy is but a speck of dust, tossed about by cosmic currents of gravity. As discovered by Edwin Hubble in the 1930s, galaxies fly apart because the universe itself is expanding. But on top of this general expansion, there is also a local movement of galaxies driven by gravity, like little eddies on the surface of a rushing tide. By mapping these eddies, known as peculiar velocities, astronomers are gradually identifying the seats of gravitational power in our local universe. In the 1970s, astronomers discovered that Milky Way, along with other galaxies in our neighbourhood, were hurtling towards the same region of space, as if someone had pulled a plug hole in the cosmos. This mysterious region, 150 million light-years away, must have an enormous gravitational pull, and so astronomers dubbed it the Great Attractor. Later, astronomers realised the Great Attractor itself was in motion, being pulled towards an even stronger source of gravity, the Shapley Supercluster, a further 600 million light-years distant. But neither of these two massive structures could fully explain the breakneck hurtling of our own Milky Way. Their direction of pull didn't quite match up. Now, astronomers, led by Yehuda Hoffman at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, have identified the piece of the puzzle. By mapping the flow of galaxies in our pocket of the universe, the team realised that besides being pulled in one direction by Shapley and the Great Attractor, the Milky Way is also being pushed from behind, most probably by a huge region of space almost completely empty of galaxies. What's more, the direction of this push aligns almost exactly with the direction we're actually travelling. They dub the void the dipole repeller because the flow lines of galaxies away from the repeller and towards Shapley create field lines similar to a dipole magnet. Like everywhere else in the universe, the void is expanding, but without the gravity of any galaxies to keep its expansion in check. This means the expanding void pushes on nearby galaxies, including our own, a bit like bubbles of air expanding inside a rising cake. In 2014, study co-authors Brent Tully from the University of Hawaii in the US and Helene Corteus from the University of Lyon in France used the same technique to measure the extent of our home supercluster, Lanikia, a local metropolis of 100,000 galaxies. The next step is to survey the repeller itself and confirm the huge region empty of galaxies they expect. A strange situation where astronomers will look into their telescopes and hope to see nothing. Thank you, Kahilo Connell and Cosmos magazine. Our next story is from Nobuyama Radio Observatory, which is a project of the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan, the NAOJ, and operates a 45-meter radio telescope and the Nobuyama Radio Polarimeter, tail of a stray black hole hiding in the Milky Way. By analysing the gas motion of an extraordinarily fast-moving cosmic cloud in a corner of the Milky Way, astronomers found hints of a wandering black hole hidden in the cloud. This result marks the beginning of a search for quiet black holes. Millions of such objects are expected to be floating in the Milky Way, although only dozens have been found to date. 
It is difficult to find black holes because they are completely black. But in some cases, black holes cause effects which can be seen. For example, if a black hole has a companion star, gas streaming into the black hole piles up around it and forms a disk. The accretion disk heats up due to the enormous gravitational pull by the black hole and emits intense radiation. But if a black hole is floating alone in space, no emissions would be observable coming from it. A research team led by Mayasa Yamada, a graduate student at Keio University in Japan, and Tomoharu Oka, a professor at Keio University, used the ASTE telescope in Chile and the 45-meter radio telescope at Nobuyama Radio Observatory to observe molecular clouds around the supernova remnant W44, located 10,000 light-years away from us. Their primary goal was to examine how much energy was transferred from the supernova explosion to the surrounding molecular gas, but they happened to find signs of a hidden black hole at the edge of W44. So now astronomers are working to confirm this sighting and find evidence of other such orphan black holes. Thank you, Nobuyama Radio Observatory. Our final report is from Daniel Clary, writing for Space, and you can find his report in sciencemag.org. Colliding stars will light up the night sky in 2022. This headline has been lighting up the internet for the last week or so, and one of the problems is that we know when we're looking through our telescopes, we're looking into the past, but as we found out earlier today, we can also look into the future, although many people are taking this report with the grain of salt. But looking at this paper that was presented to the American Astronomical Society annual meeting, a team of astronomers have used a lot of observational data and mathematical analysis to make this bold prediction. In 2022, give or take a year, a pair of stars will merge and explode, becoming one of the brightest objects in the sky for a short period. It is notoriously hard to predict when such stellar catastrophes will occur, but this binary pair is engaged in a well-documented dance of death that will inevitably come to a head in the next few years, they say. The researchers began studying the pair known as KIC 9832227 in 2013 before they were certain whether it was actually a binary or a pulsating star. They found that the speed of the orbit was gradually getting faster and faster, implying the stars are getting closer together. The pair is so close, in fact, that they share a stellar atmosphere. KIC 9832227's behaviour reminded the researchers of another binary pair, V1309 Scorpii, which also had a merged atmosphere and was spinning up faster and faster and exploded unexpectedly in 2008. Now, after two years of careful study to confirm the accelerating spin and eliminate alternative explanations, the team reported to the American Astronomical Society that the pair will explode as a red nova, an explosion caused by a binary merging, in about five years' time. These scientists, and others I'm sure, will continue to monitor KIC 9832227 over the coming years to both firm up their prediction and learn more 
about how such a death spiral ends in a red nova. Amateur astronomers can study it too, measuring how it fluctuates in brightness at an ever-increasing rate. And when it blows, we'll all be there to enjoy the show. So put 2022 in your calendar, but don't circle it in red quite just yet. Our next episode is in two weeks. Radio Wave!